0: This episode of Into the Wild is sponsored by Leica Sport Optics. It's well known and proven that connecting with wildlife and nature can improve your overall well-being. So why would you not want to turn it up a notch by getting to see things even closer and clearer with a set of binoculars? It's what I have done and I have not looked back. I can't recommend enough checking out the range of optics that Leica have to offer. A great range of kit with superb optics and they even have payment plans if you don't have the cash up front. I wouldn't shout about a company on the show that I haven't used or been impressed by. And it's important to me that companies we are partnered with have the same values as into the Wild, which is why I'm proud to give them five thumbs up. If you want to check out more of Likers range, then visit their website that can be found in the write up of this episode. And now on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild, your weekly podcast all about wildlife, conservation and nature. I am your host Ryan Dalton. As always, nice one. Thanks so much for clicking play on the pod. Hello nature nerds around the UK and the rest of the world. How you doing? Welcome to another episode of Into the Wild. Um, It's warm. I'm so warm at the moment. London's pushing 30 degrees this weekend and next week... Oh, Oh, but anyway, I'll be all right. If anyone is in London and you do see a six foot seven ginger hair guy struggling in the shade, can you come and bring me some water and factor 50? Much appreciated. It's a flying ant day. Well, a d- days because you know London's a big place, so it happens kind of at different times around London. But I saw my first few flying, the first one I saw was in the house. I thought it was a spider on the floor, but it was just a flying ant. I was like, what the hell are you doing in here? You are f- that up, get out. <laughs> flying Ant Day does attract a bit of uh, a few arguments among people that aren't that into nature. If you have to deal with those conversations, if you've got any friends or family members that say to you, oh, hey, I hate flying ants. I hate them. <laughs> they affect my life so much. And they really don't. Just I've started to just tell them what Flying Ant Day is, but in the most layman way I can. And I just tell them that Flying Ant Day is the one day a year that they're just trying to have a shag. That's all they're trying to do, leave them to it. One day, to have seconds of pleasure, let them do it. Let them get their end away, Jesus. Um, oh, and do remember to tell them that if they pour boiling water down on top of them or Ancular, then they are a So don't forget that. Um, <laughs> I should probably not be saying that on the podcast, but that is just my opinion, that is my opinion. Now, before we move on to today's episode, usually we do 60 second nature news, but I'm not going to this week. So we've got a bit of a special treat for you. So last week um, I shared an episode called um, Animal Rights Activism in Wildlife Conservation with Dominic Dyer. Um, I really enjoyed the episode. Lots of you said lo- lovely, positive things online, which was really nice. Um, and it was it was really nice for myself to get a chance to speak to Dom because we've got we have got opposing views, but um, I hope it came across that we had a nice chat because we really did. One person that did listen to the podcast uh, was a person called Maxi Lewis. Now, a few of you might remember Maxi Lewis, who has been on the show before and who is the person that toured me around Namibia when I was there back in January this year. Maxi is the chief director of an organization called Naxo, which is Um, a community-based natural resource organization which focuses on the sustainability use of natural resources, um, but for the community benefit. So uh, the economic value grows for the community whilst the sustainability and the protection of wildlife grows as well. So it's a wonderful organization. I do fantastic work. She listened to the podcast and sent me a voice note afterwards just as some replies to some of the things that Dom said. Um, She just wanted to put across her view as a Namibian woman Um, who has always lived in the country, always worked with wildlife conservation. She started from an ecotourism point of view. She's seen the value in in other forms of um, wildlife use. So she felt it was important to put her point across. Now, it is isn't very important for me to say, it's probably, I mean, a lot of you probably already know this, is that she is a Namibian person, so this is a Namibian point of view. This does not hold value across all of Africa. <laughs> Every country is different or anywhere else in the world. But I would like to share some of the things that Maxi said um, because they were very important and I, I, I felt I learned a lot from this voice note. So I'm going to quickly share some of the replies that Maxi had to Dom regarding Trophy hunting.
1: Hi, Rian. Um, good morning. Yes, I was listening to Dom's podcast Yeah, quite interesting, quite interesting. I think he is really uh, somebody that I think has evolved over years. He was probably, as I listened to his background, he really came from a good place. We all come from a good place. When I listen to him, I think he's a good person. His view is, you know, we are trying to save this planet. I keep on saying it's maybe the approach. I mean. Just a couple of things. You don't go and work in Kenya and you think that's the, the whole of Africa. You, you, you don't do that. You know? And I think his view is, I traveled Africa, went to Kenya, and that's Africa. Or you spend so much time in the East and you think that's Africa. And that's what we have been saying all along. We, 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 we have been very conscious that there's some parts in Africa where um, trophy hunting or any type of hunting should not be allowed, and we as Africans support it. And and that's that's all good. I you know, I the issue in terms of we just need money to address our problems in Africa sounds so easy. Oh, let's just move this money from wherever it was supposed to be wasted somewhere else. It 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 for me it 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 still takes me back in terms of the whole issue of colonialism where oh money will fix any everything. Africa and anywhere else in the world cannot be fixed by money <laughs> all the time. You need to work through a lot of issues. There's, it's so complex. It's more complex than just, you know, giving money to try and, and, and solve people's problems. We, I mean, and that's the same like in UK. I, you, you can put in a lot of money into things and there it became wasted. We could see it from COVID and he was admitting it himself. So money is not going to resolve everything and it sometimes it also creates uh, more problems than what it is, when when what 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 is on the ground already. So I, I don't agree with the whole issue of just pouring money. I think I, I like I like what you said is that we need to allow people to make these decisions themselves. It's their needs. If they want to continue doing what they are doing, let them do it. You know, if. Uh, they feel very strongly about doing what they are doing. Let them do it. But let's not put in money for these people to save these species because they are going... It, it is, I, I found it very, very colonial. I found it a very colonial mindset. And I cannot get my head around that somebody like Dom still speaks like that. I would really think that uh, for somebody who has travelled, who has been so exposed to things, he will probably say, you know, let's, let's engage... Um, with with these governments, but also let's hear what they say. Not all governments are, uh, are good in engaging in these type of things, but let's let's look at where we can engage, where we feel comfortable. But not like oh, let's create areas where there's no people. <laughs> I, 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 you know, it's it's not going to work in Africa, not in our parts. I, I'm sorry, uh, there will be people. There will be people you have to start adapting and see how you can manage uh, a conservation area, a species, um, with with these people. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is and it's the reality. I, I think it was just clear that he has set his mind on, I will save this species, no matter what, whether anybody else can convince him. I think his mind is made up. His mind is made up. I like what he said, and I, I think I, I I see myself in him, that if you don't put emotions in things, um, sometimes you, you, you can't really get the message across. And I do put emotions in things that I do, as long as they are beneficial to a cause. So I, I, I really agree with him on this, as long as we don't get a hang up on that, you know? If you also uh, know my background, I started with uh, supporting ecotourism. I was not uh, into hunting. But then, once I started understanding the needs of the people on the ground and I realized that hunting is not doing as much damage as it's made to believe, then that's when I started thinking, let me keep the balance here. And that's how I continue doing it. I also don't like seeing an elephant blood and all of this, but I understand. I understand why it needs to be done. And I still, in Namibia, in Botswana, in Zambia, and anywhere else, I'm still of the point that hunting is not doing any damage. Yes, it's not perfect. Let's work on tools to make sure we make it better. In our parts of the world, it's not doing the damage. We having other bigger problems that we need to look at, and uh, start uh, putting the blame on hunting. Anyhow, um, he, he was on the uh, he was on the opinion that oh yeah, if it's uh, done locally and it's sustainable, uh, then 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 it's good. <laughs> if you if you drop uh, the biggest income in terms of trophy hunting, I can tell you these communities will pick, push for bigger quotas in terms of own use, what we call own use for local uh, use, and they will pick, push more numbers because there's no money coming in anymore. We used to have one elephant hunt, we had money, and we can use this money instead of killing so many, you know, small or playing game or for, for, for own use. But now there's no money. We want more. We are going to kill them off so that we can fill the void of that money that was supposed to be filled by that elephant and so forth. Um, yeah, so <sighs> it's, it's, it's something that we need to understand. I agree with you. You made a very good point. Let's treat this not as a blanket ban, but allow uh, in other parts of the world where it's working uh, to continue creating that balance and we can still save a lot of species. I, I think that that happened. And I ask a question. Um, how many lions do we have in Namibia? Uh, I'm still waiting, but I saw a number and uh, I said to myself, um, as an Namibian, when I look at those numbers, I'm really worried, but I cannot have control if these lions are going into areas and eating people's livestock and they are being declared as problem animals and they are being killed and we don't have any other alternative to make sure that these communities are safe. I have no control over climate change. I have no control over drought. But if I go to a meeting as a Namibian, uh, to be honest, and I sit with these communities and, I'm in, and I have a lot of influence uh, around these communities, I will say, hey, this year, or next year or the next couple of years, we need to look at our lion numbers and we need to discuss this because we need to adapt and we, should, we will not put one lion on a hand. I will do that. I will stand up for a lion when I see the numbers are decreasing. But I will not go for a blanket bed for the rest of their lives. There will be no lion hands. If they increase, what are we going to do with them? So all these things, I think, needs to be taken into account. Okay, thank you. Have a nice day, my friend. Okay, bye-bye.
0: So there we go. Some important, valued and wise words from, I guess, a perspective we don't hear very much in the UK and something that I um, hope to be able to share more in the future on this topic and many other topics to do with wildlife conservation as well. Um, right, on to today's show. ladybirds. <laughs> do you know what? I love a ladybird and I'm not, this is genuinely not sarcasm, genuinely not. I love ladybirds, I think they're beautiful animals, beautiful little beetles, they're so important because I'm a gardener and I like to be in the garden and I like to make sure my plants are not being decimated by the food that ladybirds like to eat. So I welcome ladybirds, not only into my garden, but my life. (laughs) It's a deep, deep comment, but anyway... Today, we are talking about ladybirds. And quite frankly, if we're gonna talk about ladybirds, there is only one person I am interested in talking to. No offense to anyone else out there that knows about ladybirds. But that is none other than president of the Royal Entomology Society, ecologist, entomologist, Professor Helen Roy. I met Helen Roy earlier on in the year when I was lucky enough to be at the Royal Entomology Society's event where they shared their five-year plan, which was super motivated and super fascinating. And it was lovely to have Helen on the show to talk about a topic that she is incredibly passionate about. Helen's focused a lot on invasive or non-native species so it was lovely to get that chance to talk to her about from a ladybird perspective. It was just an absolute lovely chat and I learned so much about ladybirds and you're about to as well so I'm not going to blab on anymore. The episode is superb. Please sit back, relax and enjoy Ladybirds with Helen Roy. Helen, welcome to Into the Wild. It's lovely to have you on the show. We've, me and you have had a, a bit of a battle with getting a date. You were busy, then I was busy. You were, <laughs> it seems to be since the world's opened up. This is for everyone. Um, but how are you? And welcome to Into the Wild.
2: Oh, it's really great to be with you. And I'm delighted that we found a time when our, <laughs> our calendars converge. And yeah. um, that's really fantastic. And it, it's going to be really fun to be with you.
0: Thank you so much. Um, you've been doing a little bit of traveling with work again. How's that being back into the, going to different places rather than just on a laptop?
2: It's been really wonderful. It's been fantastic reconnecting with old collaborators and meeting new collaborators. And mm. just that buzz of being together has been fantastic.
0: It's such a morale boost, isn't it? To see people face to face.
2: It really is. And I think just those conversations that you have when you're stopping for a few minutes to have a cup of coffee, um, just are so valuable.
0: Those are the best conversations. I say this to people all the time. From someone that records podcasts, the best conversations are the conversations you have before you hit record. No offence to the conversation we're about to have. It's about to be beautiful and wholesome. But I just wish there's some conversations, lovely chats I've had with people in the past where we were just like, we should have recorded that. But then it wouldn't have been the same if we were.
2: No, it's really interesting, isn't it? I think also the other aspect of being all together is the laughter and Mm. that just, yeah, just the fun. It it has just been so wonderful to Mm. be back together.
0: That's lovely. And for the listeners, let's start with the obvious question. Helen, would you like to tell us who you are and what is it you do?
2: So I'm Helen Roy and I am an ecologist and I work at the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, which is a research institute. And I have a passion for all sorts of things in the way of wildlife, but I'm particularly enthusiastic about insects and I'm particularly, particularly enthusiastic about ladybirds.
0: (laughs) I love that. That was like a Russian doll kind of, and there we go to the whole bit of passion right there.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. I could go even further.
0: Oh, go on, go on. What's the (laughs) next doll?
2: (laughs) So I think the next part would then be expanding out a little bit towards ladybirds, parasites, interactions, effects of environmental change on all of these systems. That that really excites me.
0: when I was at the garden museum you quickly were telling me about that about the relationship between the two
2: Yeah, I'm really fascinated by the ways in which things um, work together and those um, interactions, I guess, just in the ways we were chatting about when we go away and Mm. um, are able to meet with other collaborators in meetings and have those interactions. Um, I find those interactions really inspiring, whether they be between people or whether they be between people and wildlife or just the wildlife. And yeah, just all of that fascinates me.
0: I think the interactions part on any level is probably the most important part of the understanding of everything anyway, because if you understand the interaction, you understand, hopefully to the best of your ability, the reaction or the impact you're going to have. And therefore you can, I don't like to use this word too much, but manage in regards some things that we have maybe shifted. We can go, well, if you know the interaction, we can maybe get it back to the original
2: yeah absolutely and I've read some really um, compelling research around the way in which sort of in conservation biology for instance we focus a lot on extinction and, and quite rightly that's mm. a, a terrible outcome of our activities as humans but actually The extinction of interactions Mm. is considered to be a kind of insidious kind of change that could really have far-reaching consequences.
0: You Obviously, we've just heard about all your passions and you love the natural world. And this is such a hard question, but I'm I'm being stubborn and keeping it in for everyone because I do like it because it can mean many different things. But for the natural world, do you have, um, what is your favourite thing about the natural world?
2: I think that always since I was a tiny child i found yeah. that connection with nature just incredibly therapeutic
1: yeah. and
2: that that aspect of being part of it all and being lost in it all is just amazing mm. and sometimes you know, at the end of a, a of a busy day just to even just to go and, and walk out into a green space and to maybe just watch a bee visiting a dandelion or something Seemingly as simple as that is just such an amazingly relaxing experience, and I just love losing myself within mm. nature.
0: I think, that, yeah, losing yourself is a really good answer. I like that because it's so true, isn't it? You can literally—it's like someone watching a film when they're engrossed and you're talking to them, and they're not listening to you. But that's what I'm like when I'm <laughs> looking at some bees on some wildflowers of any kind. I'm like, I can't hear anything else right now,
2: <laughs> I, and exactly as I am. And I, I, I go from. Being utterly captivated by that moment mm. and by seeing that interaction, for instance, to then having this whole lot of questions in my head, um, and 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 that takes me into a, a new place of being of being lost again, and and I love thinking of lots of questions that. I probably will never be able to answer, but um, I, I kind of like to just sort of think and think and think about all of the different kind of complexities of things that are going on until my mind can't think anymore. <laughs> and,
0: uh, <laughs> and Then you're like, right, cup of tea, go sit down for a bit. Yes. <laughs> um, so on that note, we are talking about one of your passions. Today, the show is focusing on ladybirds. And I love it when we have a show like this that focuses on an animal. Because we we often, like you said, we, we focus on the interaction side of nature. We talk about the, the the human and the wildlife mixed together. We're talking about conservation and maybe some issues within. But we quite often forget to go back <laughs> and talk about an animal. So I'm really excited about this today. Long overdue, we're talking about ladybirds. So Helen, your passion. I've got to ask you the question, how did the ladybird capture your heart?
2: For many, many different animals captured my imagination as a a young child. Hmm. But um, I am old enough to remember the year of 1976. I was six years old and it was a boom year for ladybirds, just like something we've never seen since. But the the numbers were just astronomical. At the time, I was living on the Isle of Wight with my mum and my sister and our back garden was my haven. And the back garden was alive with ladybirds. And what I still remember from that age of six, of course, I didn't know what the different species were that I was looking at, um, which (laughs) I feel really ashamed of now. I kind of feel like I missed an opportunity. It was six, um, Helen. Don't be so hard on yourself. (laughs) But that I could see them in different life stages. Mm. To see a ladybird come out of its pupil case aged Six and to see how that color changed before my eyes was just utterly, utterly magical. And um, I have continued to be captivated by them ever since. But, you know, I'm captivated by a lot of different um, (laughs) animals, to be honest, as well. I spent a lot of my teenage years bat watching and small mammal trapping and generally ferreting around um, in the wilderness. (laughs) Um, That's a
0: great book title. Write that down right now. (laughs) (laughs) Genuinely ferreting around in the wilderness.
2: (laughs) But ladybirds, um, I just the more and more I find out about ladybirds, the more and more I just find them incredible. They're, you know, in terms of sort of their natural history and their life history traits, their diversity, their yeah. interactions with other species, their defensive chemistry, the way in which they communicate with one another. They're just fascinating.
0: That's oh, so lovely. When you say 1976 being like a boom for populations, I guess, too, I know, and you will probably not have the number, but I'm saying, what are we talking in, in regards to like, what did, were they just everywhere?
2: Yeah they were just everywhere so there are photos you can look up photos from that time Mm. of um sort of red tides where there were so many ladybirds reaching the coast that there was sort of a band of of ladybirds being washed up on the tide. so the numbers were colossal it is would be really hard to give an absolute number of how many there were (laughs) but just thinking um to my memory of our small um, vegetable patch in this back garden of this um, small house on the Isle of Wight, mm. every bean plant would have had, oh, I mean, obviously I'm thinking back to age six years old, but yes, yeah. definitely 20 individuals on a bean plant, for instance. Wow. Um, yeah, I just... I mean, that
0: is a huge. lot when you consider it. Yeah, right. Well, like you said that's one garden, one bean plant, and then consider what else is going to be around.
2: And people will tell tales of that time of um, of ladybirds biting them, for instance. And, really? and, and the numbers got very high. The ladybirds got very hungry. People will report that they were on the beach with their ice cream. The um, <laughs> ladybirds were landing on their ice creams. And um, yeah, some people were reporting being... Um, bitten by them, which which ladybirds you know, they are beetles with biting mouth parts. They definitely can do that. It yeah. is no more than the tiniest nibble. It's nothing to get very excited about. But the fact yeah. that they were in those kind of numbers and got very, very hungry. And it was just a perfect combination of um, environmental um, factors that came together. Um, the aphid numbers were high. Right. It was a long warm summer, just perfect, perfect conditions for the ladybirds to really uh, reach high numbers.
0: That's incredible, because that was going to be my question. Was it just purely environmental, you know, mix that just kind of went, this is our year, boys, this is 1976?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, they would have had to have had a good winter to get through Mm. in quite high numbers to have that sort of starting population and Mm. and many of them although i couldn't identify them at the time (laughs) i was i know that many of them were um seven spot ladybirds and they have one generation per year so they need to have a good starting point but then they need to have a lot of aphids around in order to get through their um their life cycle so ladybirds um Begin as an egg, and then they have they hatch out as little teeny tiny larvae that are very different to the adults. Little grub-like larvae, they go through what's called four instars, four stages of development, and then they pupate, and then they are transformed into the adult beetle that we're all much more familiar with. And seven-spot ladybirds can only go through that cycle once in a year. Because they need to have the winter as an adult in order to become sexually mature. So it would have just been perfect conditions to get quite rapidly through that life cycle and for a lot of the larvae to survive and with enough aphids to be feeding on to reach those very high numbers.
0: I'm going to very, very quickly see if I say 1976 on my phone. (laughs) I just want to see if there's a picture. Yeah, put
2: ladybirds on the beach or something like that, because there's various sort of hypotheses as to why beaches seem oh to have a God. particularly high number. Yeah, have you got the 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 red oh tide? My
0: God. <laughs> yeah, but also on the side of roads. Yes. Good I mean, I Lord. think my
2: 20 per bean plant was an underestimate, wasn't it, when you look at that?
0: When I look at that, I mean... I'm now thinking you had loads of bean plants as well.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we did. I can literally take myself back to that moment in my mind. That's I lovely. Mean, yeah, I can literally go back to 1976, put myself back in that vegetable patch as Good a six-year-old God. child, um, just watching the ladybirds on is, our vegetables.
0: I'm going to say to the listeners now, unless you are driving or you're walking alongside a road. But what I'm trying to say is do it safely. Pause this podcast and Google 1976 Lady Bird on the beach. And actually the pictures are clearer on the side of the road. So that is absolutely incredible. Give that a watch because that will just put some context into what Helen's just described.
2: It it really was incredible, incredible numbers. I will say it was also a summer where I fell in love with a rat on our compost heap. So, you know, it was a kind of a...
0: (laughs) it It was... What a year.
2: It was. I mean, what a year. It was just a very informative time of my life. And probably for my mum, incredibly challenging.
0: We all have those years that stick in our mind. And for you, it was the plague of Ladybirds and the love affair with the rats. Indeed. That's lovely. Um, So let's talk on a global scale for Ladybirds then. So Is there a approximate species number for around the world of because we talk about their diversity and in their colour and and maybe the spots and all all that kind of thing, but do we know roughly about how many global species we have?
2: We do we have more than five thousand species of ladybirds worldwide yeah incredible diversity yeah and many of them we are familiar with because they feed on pest insects so many Mm. of them are aphid predators for instance or predators of scale insects Mm. but there are also some that feed on plants um there are some that feed on mildews some really teeny tiny ones that don't look ladybird like at all that feed on mites and other things as well so their diversity yeah it's 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 a good number i mean beetles are incredibly diverse
0: yeah that's i mean that number whenever i think about it gives me a headache yeah
2: it does <laughs> and in the uk we have about 47 species and i say that because the number does change so it changes in the, in the way of new arrivals coming in mm. So there's these tiny little ladybirds um, within a genus called rhizobius um, which we had Rhizobius latura is quite a common one and then chrysomyloides is um, on the increase and now we have a few more of these tiny ladybirds that are just cropping out there they look very beetle like they're brown but they're slightly hairy and you can see some Mm. kind of patterning on them. Okay. so they're the sort of tiny ladybirds and they do look very different to the ladybirds that people are more familiar with. Mm. When people think of a ladybird, they often think of a brightly coloured, round, medium sized beetle. And they would be right that 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 would be a good description of a ladybird. But, for example, in the UK, our smallest ladybird, if you were to draw a dot on the page in front of you, Maybe try and give it some teeny tiny little yellow legs and appendages. That would be our tiniest um, ladybird. Oh my um, Gosh, Yeah. How do we know
0: about that? I'm, I'm just so like, this is why I love human brains because I'm like, someone had to find that out
2: <laughs> yeah and i am always looking for that one when i have if i'm out with my sweet net i look very carefully into the sort of bottom of the little bits of frass that sort of gathers yeah. in the bottom of the sweet net to see if any of it moves and walks um and then if it does i'm on it with my hand lens uh, <laughs> <laughs> in the hope that it is this tiny lady have you found bird. it before I have found it, but actually, actually, I often don't, but I don't find it in the bottom of my sweetener. I have never found it yet in the bottom of my sweetener, despite my looking. But I was outside once at my research institute having coffee with one of our amazing administrators. And I'd obviously talked a lot about this ladybird. And we put up the umbrella on the table on this sunny day. And she had a white piece of paper in front of her. And she just pointed at this little speck. And she said, oh, is that that ladybird you're always talking about? I said, yes, yes, that is it. Oh, my
0: God. That's all, That's beautiful, but also frustrating yes you know- <laughs> but it was beautiful it was really beautiful it yes it was right
2: yeah I, I did spend quite a while I was just saying to, yes oh, that's, that is that's it the
0: one I sweep net for Thank yeah you I've for worked really hard to out.
2: find <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly does that all I needed to do
2: but it was it was beautiful to see and actually with the sun shining on it mm. even without a hand lens you get to see it's kind of bright yellow legs um as Amazing. it sort of scuttles across in this case a white oh, piece of paper so on cool. the table
0: so when we talk about their diversity, I mean, so for, was it 47 species yes. averaging in the UK? Yes. So I guess when you say new arrivals, how do we define that with native? Are they ones that might actually, they are native, but they disappear for a bit if the conditions aren't right and then they come back? when conditions are better is that how we define
2: that it's all kinds of different ways so the for example the harlequin ladybird which is a sort of very famous ladybird if you like was introduced by humans into various countries across europe but never intentionally introduced into the uk right um but it was introduced by humans as a biological control agent of pest insects in for Mm -hmm. example france so that species we would term a non-native species because it's been introduced by humans yes And then it found its way across to the UK a whole variety of different ways um, on produce in people's luggage in their cars Mm. on the Eurostar Um, it it got here. Whereas there are other ladybirds that will expand their range um, naturally um, and just are moving, for example, further northward and um, they're doing that through their own sort of natural dispersal, if you like. Um, And particularly as our climate is warming, they're finding that they are able to settle at more northern latitudes. So there's all kinds of ways in which they are moving and sometimes we don't know how how they're arriving and we can kind of guess on the basis of how good they are at dispersing or how close they were already to um to the uk about how they've arrived but sometimes it's hard to tell it's hard to tell
0: and what about their size because you're talking about the smallest one which is like you know imagine a bit of paper with a like drawn a dot and kind of thing but like is, is there a big scope in size or is it kind of one extreme to another?
2: No, there is a big scope in size because you go all the way from that one that's sort of about a millimetre long mm. up to our largest ladybird in the UK is the eyed ladybird and that's about eight millimetres long. Oh, wow. Um, It's big. It's a big beast. Yeah. When you see it flying... It always sort of (laughs) takes me by surprise. I mean, stag beetles, of course, are enormous when you see them flying. That's incredibly spectacular. Mm. But actually, an eyed ladybird is pretty spectacular to see fly as well. So that's our biggest ladybird, the harlequin ladybird. is quite a large ladybird as is the seven-spot ladybird. They're both about sort of six millimetres in size. And then we have sort of an assortment of the smaller ones, such as, for example, the two-spot ladybird, which used to be very common and widespread, is is seen less now because of its interactions with the harlequin ladybird. But that's sort of a a smaller ladybird of about sort of four millimetres.
0: Wow. And actually, that brings us onto a point, because I was going to ask you, with the non-native species that have been introduced or found their way over, because that's quite a, I kind of hear that kind of we we whether it's an issue or not but there is a problem with non-native species how much of that is an issue for the ladybirds that were here originally
2: so the harlequin ladybird is a concern to us and um so within the UK there are about 2000 non-native species that are established that is a sustaining um, populations plants and animals of mm-hmm. all kinds wow of those 2000 About 15% of them cause some kind of problem, and they're the ones that we would term invasive non-native species, for instance. So the harlequin ladybird would fall very well within that description of an invasive non-native species being a new arrival that's been introduced by humans, causes problems. Whereas, for instance, there's another quite large ladybird called the briny ladybird that was first spotted in um, Surrey in the mid-1990s as its name suggests, it feeds on white briny mm-hmm. and uh, its spread has been incredibly slow. So it's found in a sort of few surrounding counties in that location. But since it's only feeding on white briny, we're not concerned about mm. it. its arrival, but it was introduced by humans. Whereas in contrast, the harlequin ladybird in its first year spread at 80 to 100 kilometres per year. Oh my God. It must be one of the fastest spreading that's um, huge. Yeah, it's such a small invasive, animal. As yeah, well. exactly. It it was incredibly fast, and we know this because when we had the first records of the harlequin ladybird mm. in two thousand and four, we set up what was the first online wildlife survey. Which seems remarkable that there weren't other online surveys. You know, now we see yeah. a lot of online surveys.
0: It's like the big thing, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and it was the first one. And um, we encouraged people to send in their sightings of all ladybirds, um, but it did a lot of awareness raising around the arrival of the harlequin ladybird. So we were able to, using these amazing um, observations that people sent to us, we were able to track the spread of the harlequin ladybird, and, and that's how we know. Um, about its sort of rapid pace of spread. Mm. But we were also able to, as a consequence of the amazing data that people had already been sending in on Ladybirds over the years, because there's been a Ladybird recording scheme for many, many decades. Since um,
0: 1976. Yeah,
2: indeed. <laughs> as you do know, it predates me. <laughs> so, really? <laughs> yeah. And if only I'd known there was a Ladybird recording scheme in Can 1976, because I didn't submit my records. So I mean,
0: you know, you, yeah imagine those records oh, a missed, missed opportunity yeah, that would have been amazing
2: <laughs> but um the uh so you because we have these amazing data sets these long-term and large-scale data sets of other ladybirds we were able to do some complicated statistical modeling to look at what's the effect of the harlequin ladybird on the distribution of other ladybirds And we looked at eight native ladybird species and seven out of eight of those native ladybirds showed distribution decline very strongly linked to the arrival of the harlequin ladybird. And we know that it eats the other ladybirds. It's a very strong competitor of those other ladybirds that feed on aphids. Um, And particularly, this two-spot ladybird that I've already mentioned, um, it it has a really high niche overlap. The harlequin and the two-spot ladybird like living in the same places, basically. They both really like deciduous trees. The harlequin will live in many other places, so will the two-spot. But they both really enjoy being in deciduous trees. The two-spot ladybird is just not such a good competitor when it's up against um, the harlequin, and also it's not very well chemically defended. So all ladybirds have some chemical defences. That's what their bright colours are warning that they taste horrible. But the two-spot ladybird doesn't have as good and strong chemical defences as does as do many of the others Mm. and the harlequin ladybird will just eat it there is also just anecdotally when i'm out and about um when i do see two spot ladybirds um in terms of their sort of how their life cycle plays out they're at their pupil stage when um the harlequin ladybird is at a late instar larval stage Uh, it's very very hungry stage
0: even even physical getting away is not (laughs)
2: and you just see the harlequins nibbling away at the two spot pupils. So yeah, the two-spot ladybird, from that analysis, we were able to demonstrate had a 44% decline in distribution, strongly correlated with the harlequin. And we've put in all kinds of other factors into that um, Um, statistical analysis. And the harlequin just comes out as the main reason why two-spots are struggling.
0: And is there anything we could, I mean, this is a big question. How do we manage that? Because that's such a, with that distribution spread, that's hard to get on top of. What, what, What do we do there?
2: So there is nothing that we can do about the harlequin ladybird. Mm. And we specifically say to people, please don't um, kill them because they're so easily confused with other ladybirds. And also Mm. it would not even make a dent on yeah, on their exactly. populations. So we do ask people to send in their sightings and keep recording them because it's really valuable information. But there's no effective um, control for the harlequin ladybird. But what we have been able to do is learn from that experience of the arrival of the harlequin ladybird and people getting involved with the monitoring and surveillance and use that for other species. So for example, Vespa velatina, the Asian or yellow-legged hornet, um, which is a species that we are concerned um, could establish in the UK and if it's on um, honeybees but also wild pollinators as well. Right. And so we've been able to use um, the approaches that we use for the harlequin ladybird um, to have a very um, rigorous surveillance and monitoring um, system in place for the Asian hornet. And so far Uh, The Asian hornet has been eradicated um, year on year since its Mm. first detection in the UK in 2016. And the reason that it's possible is often with insects, once they've arrived somewhere, it's very difficult to do anything about them if if they are a problem. The the best thing is to stop them arriving in the first place Mm. if you know they are going to cause problems. The Asian hornet, because all of the individuals go back into their nest at night, it makes it achievable because you can just take out that nest.
0: <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks, hornets. That's incredibly handy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: Whereas the harlequin ladybirds do not play to our um, advantage in that way.
0: Wow, that's um, that, that's that's really that's really interesting though. How like you know one one error like that can actually just teach us how to manage a plethora of potential new errors coming <laughs> yes. in. Mean,
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And the thing that we have learned a lot through the Harlequin ladybird, um, through the invasion process. Mm. And I think um, in terms of these are dramatic figures, 44% decline in two-spot ladybirds, but what we need to have a better understanding, and it goes back to my fascination with um, interactions, is what does that really mean in terms of the way in which how that's affecting nature and the functioning of nature? Mm um and understanding those interactions is really really important to that
0: yeah that's that's a, that's very like you know it's, that's where the complexities comes in isn't it yeah. when you start looking at the deeper level um i'm going to ask you the into the wild question now about ladybirds which whenever i have someone on the show talking about an animal they dread because i always say they don't have one or it's hard but do you have a favorite ladybird?
2: I am so fickle with my favourite ladybirds. <laughs> so I it changes a lot, but Does the it? the top ones are quite consistent. <laughs> I have a favorite tiny one, which is called Nephus quadramaculatus, oh. and it is really tiny, but has four red spots and is commonly found on ivy growing over warm walls. So quite that's that's, <laughs> that's where I find thing. it. So I really, and it is a red data book species. It's thought to be quite a rarity. But as soon as I moved into this village where I live now, I found it on a wall with ivy um, like, in a sunny so spot. So
0: going to be checking
2: that. Yeah, so I really if people can get new county records of this species. That's what's great about that one. And what I think with the ladybirds is that you know people might think surely we know everything we possibly need to know about ladybirds. They're such a <laughs> kind of iconic insect, but there's just these new discoveries to be made all of the time. And so that's what I love about these tiny tiny ladybirds. That there's a lot that we don't know about them, even about their sort of distribution. So that's often my favourite tiny ladybird. Then, although I do really like that tiny, the really, really tiny one as well, (laughs) but then in terms of the the larger ladybirds, I I go between the seven spot ladybird, which I was fortunate to do my PhD studies on. And so I felt like I had this sort of lived intimately with the seven spot ladybirds (laughs) and culture. I used to take them away with me for weekends when I was trying to get enough. Yeah. Because just for lols. Well, because I (laughs) just for comfort. (laughs) Because I had um because I had I was culturing them for behavioral experiments and also to put out in the field for um community ecology type experiments. Yeah. And um, they do eat a lot. And in order to just look after them really well, I would turn up <laughs> at my friend's houses with trays of aphids and trays of la- ladybirds so that I could just nurture them over the weekend.
0: Did you see so, a correlation of social invites drop? In that, yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> It was really interesting how people responded, actually. Some people...
0: <laughs> I'd love it.
2: Yeah, some people would look as if are those particularly the concern over the aphids are they going to go onto my house plants and right. I would then have the wonderful opportunity to talk to them about um how specificity of aphids so then they would often wish they had not asked that question <laughs> <laughs> and that they just let me come in and poured me a glass of wine just get um, the wine out <laughs> yeah um and yeah other people just knew that was fairly consistent with my behavior so um but yeah so I the seven spot ladybirds just they are lovely and they are are sort of like iconic ladybird but there's another one the heather ladybird which i love for no other reason other than it is a black ladybird with a row of spots that goes from one side of it to another rather than from the head to the tail so end it goes horizontally like. yeah it. and it just it's the quirkiness of its patterning yeah and also that that is um its species name is by which means the 2 two kind of red splodges but but the splodges are divided up so it ends up with having three kind of splodges on either wing case and i don't know why these kind of things just fascinate me but i yeah. just find that just beautiful i just yeah. like the quirkiness it's of
0: different. it <laughs> yeah it's different to what we expect
2: yeah absolutely and it's just a really lovely ladybird, and whenever so, I do a lot of the verification of ladybirds within a system called iRecord, alongside um, my wonderful friend and collaborator Peter Brown from Anglia Ruskin University. And whenever there's a heather ladybird, I get very, very excited. <laughs> but then there are a hieroglyphic ladybird, orange ladybird. Yeah, there are many that I put to my top. But yeah. today I'll have heather ladybird. Yeah, heather
0: ladybird for your top today on world <laughs> Today, tomorrow
2: probably orange.
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> i like that hey sorry to interrupt the episode nature nerds it's ryan your host here i just want to give you a quick shout out about something into the wild always aims to be a free show accessible for everyone however running it is not free if you would like to support into the wild and say thanks then you can do so by visiting ko-fi.com forward slash into the wild pod the link is in the write-up of this episode By doing this and buying us a coffee, you are helping the future of Into the World. Thanks very much and back onto the show. So we've discussed, you know, about the diversity and I guess, is there diet for a ladybird? Let's, I guess, let's focus on the UK, but it might be similar globally. Is it like kind of consistent with what we're expecting to eat? So like aphids and animals like that?
2: so they each feed on different things and they have different favorites and some of them are more generalists than others hmm. so ladybirds such as the harlequin ladybird and actually the seven spot ladybird are quite generalists so they they feed on aphids and they do very very well feeding on aphids but um They will have even their favorite aphids. So, nettle aphids are fantastic for aphid feeding ladybirds. They love a nettle aphid. But the harlequin, for instance, will eat other ladybirds. So will the seven spot. They will eat caterpillars, lacewings, hoverfly larvae, all kinds of things. So, they're quite generalist, although the kind of core of their diet will be as aphid feeders. Yeah. And then there are some that are much more specific around scale insects for instance and this little heather ladybird that i mentioned it and two other species within the uk um, have amazing adaptations um, to feed on scale insects including has a little rim around the edge of their mm. their bodies that they can kind of use to prise open the scale and get under the scale to feed on it wow um, so they have some really um adaptations for that And then, for example, the orange ladybird is a mildew feeding ladybird. Its mouthparts are about scraping mildew off the surface of leaves. And we have a few other mildew feeders. And then a couple of plant feeders. So the the 24 spot ladybird, that should be up in my favourite on some days. I must remember (laughs) that. Um, It's got the cutest ladybird larva. It looks very like a little mini hamster. Um, Oh my God. Yeah. So definitely Google 24 spot ladybird larvae. Yeah.
0: Honestly, (laughs) it's the
2: cutest larva. You're going to be so overwhelmed with the cuteness of this lava.
0: Good lord. You're right.
2: It's beautiful. 100%. It is. And
0: like they feed on sp- plants.
2: It's almost like a hedgehog. Yeah, okay, yeah. It is. If you zoom in. Yeah. Yes, true. It's very spiky kind of hairiness yeah. to it. Oh
0: god, that's adorable
2: it is adorable love it listeners google (laughs) they scrape off the sort of surface of grasses and other plants that they feed on Mm. so some of them are plant feeders and so we see that diversity all the way around the world of some that are plant feeding but the vast majority are predatory either on aphids or scale insects and they're also quite highly cannibalistic wow so yeah it's so Oh, I think the whole reproductive biology is fascinating. There's been some amazing studies done on how a female ladybird chooses where to lay her eggs. And partly that's based on the fact that her offspring are going to be highly cannibalistic. And so are the offspring of her friends. So she, if she lays her eggs nearby the eggs of another ladybird, then whichever one hatches first, then they're probably going to go and eat each other. So yeah, so they're, they're really sort of, an aphid feeding ladybird can detect the presence of another ladybird by um, the footprint chemicals that the other ladybird has left behind. So they have little chemicals on their feet that they kind of leave a trail of. And that says to that incoming ladybird, I've already got here first, laid my eggs, I would leave if I was you. They will also look at the stage of development of the aphid Mm -hmm. colony. So if there are a lot of shed larvae. shed aphid skins and a lot of honeydew they will choose not to lay there even though there may look like there's going to be a lot of aphids to support their offspring mm. because the colony could collapse so wow. they choose a particular point at which they'll lay their eggs near an aphid colony and also not if there's been other ladybirds um there already um so yeah it is, it is so amazing specific.
0: like you yeah would, I, I would not have thought that a ladybird has that much requirements for where they're laying their eggs
2: Yeah. And then she'll lay her eggs often in little clutches of, Mm. you know, maybe like 20 eggs. And there's a very high pressure if you're in that if you're a ladybird larva to hatch really quickly because if you are late your siblings are going to be eating you before you've even got out <sighs> of your egg. It's high pressured life I think being a ladybird. Um, it
0: is. I was I was felt sorry for sea turtles and eggs, but this sounds way more stressful.
2: <laughs> oh, I think it is. And then if we add into that the fascination of the male killing bacteria that some of these um, ladybirds have, and there are these little bacteria that only get passed from mother to daughter, and they're within within the cells of the ladybird and um, they've got a long evolutionary relationship with the ladybird and because essentially all of the males in that clutch are of no value to that bacteria because even if that bacteria is in them it can't then pass the next generation right. so the bacteria kills all of the males and then what that means is that the females hatch and they can feed on their dead brothers and the um The advantage to them is enormous. So we did some research to look at in terms of survival and development times. Mm. If you feed on one of your siblings as you hatch out, your, your development is faster and your survival is higher. So that, of course, is great for that bacteria if it's in a female ladybird that's fed on one of her dead brothers.
0: I must, it's important to say that sentence is purely about ladybirds, if the listeners are. (laughs) Indeed, but I just. (laughs) That sentence does not relate to any of us.
2: (laughs) It does remind me there of taking some rainbows, some five and six year olds on a bug hunt once when my daughter was that age and in the rainbows. And we had this fantastic bug hunt where we found lots of ladybirds. Everybody was fine. No one had tripped over. There was no instance. We were back in in the in the scouting hut, ready to say goodbye. And I just sort of said, "Any any final questions?" And um, my daughter, age five, put up her hand and said, "You haven't told them all about how the sisters eat their dead brothers."
0: Brilliant. Thanks for that. Right. <laughs> and I thought,
2: "Yes, they're five. That's yes, why. That's why." <laughs>
0: but, well. She she is a little Helen Roy, so. There there is
2: a cohort now of of young rainbows who are now age 20 who will know all about (laughs) eating their dead brothers.
0: Such a niche bit of information just slowly (laughs) spreading around to the youth. Amazing. Um, Well, with that diversity in diet, I've got to say, as a gardener myself, this is why, and I only learned this a couple of years ago from asking my girlfriend's mum, who's an organic gardener. I was like, aphids what do I do how do I how do I manage this and she just straight away said ladybirds so I guess this is why we should as a society be loving ladybirds when we find them in our garden right
2: absolutely and I think in terms of all of the things that eat aphids there are things that we can do to encourage them in our gardens Mm. and um people are very familiar and very happy when they see ladybirds on their roses or their bean plants Mm. eating at the aphids but all the things as well like these little parasitic wasps the hoverflies the lacewings all of these things are playing their part in naturally controlling the pest insects in our gardens and just doing things like people leaving um, leaf litter on the ground um, having piles of sticks out for the insects to go and spend the winter time that's incredibly valuable. Yeah. And there's really so many ways in which people, I mean, we when I'm looking out on my garden now in no mo May and it's it's fantastic. It's it's like a, a, a small meadow. Yeah. Um, but just all of these small things that we can do in in the patches of land that we have responsibility for can make a really big difference to insects.
0: Yeah, it's lovely. And it, like you said, the results you see sh- almost straight away. And and I know my co-host, fit Into the Foliage, a series we do about plants and stuff like that in her garden. She was like, right, I'll do no mome. I'm sure it will just be grass. And out of nowhere, she's had cuckoo flowers come up. She's never had yeah. them before. And just because of one month, she's not mowed. She said, cuckoo flowers. I'm like, that is a that is a big plant that's a lovely plant to have suddenly pop up in your garden
2: yeah that is lovely and people have been talking about um the goldfinches coming to the dandelion um, to feed on the dandelion seeds and I've been feeling quite envious thinking well I haven't seen we've got a lot of dandelion seeds, and I've not seen any goldfinches well I was working sat here I'm working at home today looking out at my garden and there was a goldfinch feeding on the dandelions today yeah and I thought oh it's just so it's so lovely and it's such a these things are really quite simple things to do. The same as sort of leaving out a little tray of water for things like the hoverflies mm-hmm. to feed on um, during the hot summer days. And- yeah. Making sure that you've got flowers um, all around the year. So, even for example, the ladybirds, when they're predators, they they will feed on pollen, for instance, Mm. and particularly when they first come out of their their, uh, winter dormancy, they really want to get their energy supplies up. And um, they're often seen feeding on flowers and on the pollen in particular for that sort of high energy first meal. So, all these things are so important for our insects.
0: And before we finish and I ask you the final question, you are the president of the Royal Entomology Society. That's where I met you at the event in London, which was lovely. Tell us a bit about what we can look forward to, because it was lovely to be there at that event that evening, to, to be with people that just loved entomology, and to hear about the plans from RES and over the next three to five years. Tell us about what we can expect from RES over the next few years.
2: Yeah, so I'm so privileged to be the president of the Royal Entomological Society. It's really a fantastic society. And I joined when I was a PhD student in the mid 1990s and have mm. got so much from it through each stage of my career. And it brings together entomologists, the community of entomologists. And I think, you know, entomology takes many, many different forms. And the Royal Entomological Society supports all entomologists whatever it is that they're interested in and um, having that community and having that network um, is just absolutely fantastic but what's particularly exciting is there's been big changes at the Royal Entomological Society over the last couple of years really thinking about the strategic directions going forward and the ways in which for example that we can increase our activities around equality diversity and inclusion Mm -hmm. and probably people are aware that as a woman i'm in the minority as an entomologist mm-hmm. and i don't know why that is why why would that why would that be the case and if there are ways in which we can encourage more women to be within the field and to to have the joy of being an entomologist, well, that will be really fantastic. And that's just one particular aspiration. But also in terms of thinking about the ways in which we support our membership and providing small grants and thinking about the ways in which we can better promote and celebrate the stories from our community through social media we already have a fantastically successful annual event called insect week and that's coming up fairly soon and um, that's been an amazing example of partnership working with many many different organizations getting involved and running events and celebrating insects in all their guises and doing more of that more around the education and awareness raising and And we have Luke Tilley and Franz Gontz at the Royal Entomological Society, who are just both fantastic communicators. And Adam Hart, who I I know has been on your programs before, and Suryan Sumner, and many others who are just fantastic communicators, fantastically excited about insects. And sharing that far and wide is what the society is all about. And I think that it's a very old society, so it dates back to the 1800s and...
0: I love, um, that. I love it I love it
2: it's very much with insect science at the very core, but in terms of sort of widening um, participation and sharing that science that's that's our way forward
0: That's lovely. it's so nice to see and the final question is the next into the wild one is if you could pass on one bit of advice on to everyone regarding the natural world, what would you pass on?
2: I would pass on just enjoy it and look after it in the ways that you can practically do. So you know to be able to, I think sometimes when we think about the magnitude of environmental change, it can just seem really overwhelming Mm. when we think about climate change and the climate projections, the arrival of invasive non-native species or the land use change that we see around us. But I think we have real cause for optimism because we as individuals can do things to make a difference and we've talked about some of those things that we can just do in the green spaces near us like looking after the the insects um, better but i would also just say just take a few moments to just stand and enjoy the things around you i think we do race around so much and there's just an enormous pleasure to just standing as I mentioned earlier, looking at a dandelion, seeing what arrives on it. Mm. And actually that gives me an opportunity to then promote our pollinator monitoring do, scheme. Yes, do it. <laughs> and the flower insect time counts, which encourage you to spend 10 minutes doing exactly that, watching and recording the insects that are visiting flowers. And I think it is incredibly therapeutic and captivating. And really that sort of appreciation of the natural world just does nothing like it.
0: Absolutely agree. Well, Helen, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure to chat to you. I've learned so much about Ladybirds and now I'm going to be going to find a wall with some ivy on it.
2: (laughs) Great. I'm delighted (laughs) to hear that.
0: that, Um, Thank you so much and um, all the best for the rest of your trips and research and work for the year.
2: Oh, it's a real pleasure to be with you and thank you so much for inviting me along. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you. No worries. Thank you.
0: Thanks again for listening everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the guests that have appeared in today's Into the Wild episode, then you can do so on social media. Their tags are in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at IntotheWildpod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at IntotheWildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, however running it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks, then you can do so by buying me a coffee. Our Ko-fi link is in the write-up of this episode. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.